Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, January 3rd episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. With us today is Carlos Campos Jr., with whom I will be discussing their poem, Maíz to our Lloronas, and my poem, To My Sisters. Before we get into that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of January 4th. On Monday, January 4th, from 8.15 p.m. Amsterdam time, Labyrinth will be hosting its weekly open mic, and you can find out more information and register at labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound signed events. Again, that's labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound signed events. From 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Clean open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Meditation Monday writing workshop with Alex Petunia. You can find out more information on Instagram at the Poetic Petunia. Again, that's on Instagram at the Poetic Petunia. Petunia is spelled P-E-T-U-N-I-A. Again, that's P-E-T-U-N-I-A. On Tuesday, January 5th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their weekly first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. And again, this is a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 8 to 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Alexa Lash and Kiana Major will be hosting their creatively undistanced open mic. You can find out more information at Major Muse on Instagram. Again, that's at Major Muse on Instagram. Muse is spelled M-U-Z-E. Again, that's M-U-Z-E. At 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Dirty open mic via Instagram Live at Poets underscore Playground underscore. Again, that's at Poets underscore Playground underscore. On Wednesday, January 6th, from 6 p.m. Amsterdam time, Word Up Amsterdam will be hosting their Inspiration Factory Writing Workshop by Janice. You can find out more information and register at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops dot html. Again, that's wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. 
Weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y. From 8.30 p.m. Beirut time, Sidewalk Beirut will be hosting their online open mic, and you can find out more information by visiting at Sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or at Sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. Again, that's either at Sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or Sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. On Thursday, January 7th, from 9 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their open mic, and you can find out more information at parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. On Friday, January 8th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information and register by messaging at survivor.andrina.lian. That's survivor.andrina.lian. Andrina is A-N-D-R-E-E-N-A. Lian is L-E-E-A-N-N-A. From 6 p.m. West African time, Graciano Enworm will be hosting his Corona versus Open Mic via Instagram Live at Graciano Enworm. That's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. From 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Words Out Loud will be hosting their monthly open mic and literary trivia, this month featuring myself and John Blair. You can find out more information by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash events. Again, that's poetsandmuses.com forward slash events. From 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their first Lunario Poetico, their Spanish language open mic, Microfondo Abierto en Español. And you can find out more information on Instagram at Los Angeles Poets Society. Again, that's at Los Angeles Poets Society on Instagram. On Saturday, January 9th, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Root Slam will be hosting their virtual writing workshop, this time for Black writers 18 and up. You can find out more information and register at rootslam.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's rootslam.org forward slash calendar. Root is R-O-O-T. From 9 to 11 p.m. Morocco time, Moroccan Poets will be hosting their open mic via Instagram Live at Moroccan Poets. Again, that's at Moroccan Poets on Instagram Live. From 5 to 5.30 p.m. Arizona time, Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting their Speak Poet Saturday via Instagram Live at Arizona Masters of Poetry. Again, that's at Arizona Masters of Poetry on Instagram. On Sunday, January 10th, from 4.45 p.m. to 7 p.m. British time, Andrina and G.J. will be hosting the first of their monthly Adult Survivors Open Mic. You can find out more information 
by visiting at Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. Again, that's at Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. From 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Pure Ink Poetry, hosted by our past poet guest, Brandon Williamson, will be holding their video slam. And you can find out more information and register at pureinkpoetry.com. Again, that's at pureinkpoetry.com. From 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, City of Asylum will be hosting their free association reading series. And you can find out more information and register at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's cityofasylum.org. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Carlos Campos Jr. Hi, Carlos. Thank you very much for Hi. coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you for having me. Of course. You brought with you your poem, Maiz to our Yoronas. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I would love to. So, my name is Carlos. Uh, I use they them pronouns. I was born in sort of like a you know, working class immigrant household, so I went to a lot of schools that weren't the best in terms of funding, even though the teachers, for the most part, tried their best, it wasn't the best in terms of teaching. Mm. It was because they didn't really have the supplies, they didn't have the, the things that they needed in order to be able to teach properly. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, I kind of was that kid who, before high school, was the one that never really talked to anyone, always was sort of very quiet, very introverted, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes like did some creative thing. In middle school, I was in choir. <laughs> as I mentioned, I was a very introverted kid, and yet the first year I was put as a soloist, oh. uh, you know, for a concert, and because I, I was like, one of the few kids who actually didn't lip sync, mm-hmm. so I was actually one of the few tenors who was actually singing. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to be using you as a as a soloist, mm-hmm. and I was just screaming because I was like, what did I get myself into? Um, <laughs> but it worked out for the best. And I fell in love with music and fell in love with performing. Mm-hmm. Um, but by eighth grade, I became that, like, you know, it's like that eighth grade, you know, so where all the kids start going, like, you know, oh, I, I hate choir. But there were some justified reasons for it. I mm-hmm. felt most of the songs that we were singing were too pop mm-hmm. and, and too, like, a uh, you know, it's like that perfect kind of music that, like, um, you would get bullied for. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, I, I for one, did not want to get bullied. No. Uh, and, you know, when I was in high school, I was no longer in choir, but I started getting, like, musical instruments and started, you know, really developing in artistic desire. Because mm-hmm. for the most part of my life, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But in high school, you know, I started getting a, a better uh, taste uh, for music and for art and everything. And you know, start listening to certain music styles. I mean, like, I, I first got into rock, as I think most kids who uh, went through a breakup and started having, like, a very, like, oh, I hate life, I hate everyone, phase would go through. Mm. Um, but then I got into, like, folk music and started listening to musicians like Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, mm. and so on and so forth. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was the emphasis on what was being sung. One of the things that I really appreciated was just how how important the words were to like the central message and central themes of what they wanted to bring out. But especially like 
the commentary it would have, whether it's explicit or you know implicit in the songs itself. Most of the folk singers here in the United States and also Latin America, even if it's a song say like about love or something along those lines, you can still feel it both having this relationship where it is very clear of what's going on in its time, mm-hmm. um, while also having this universal message. Mm. Uh, most of them, unfortunately, still like ring some kind of truth today. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's, you know, even for those that like might not necessarily be the same exact thing, there's still kind of this. And I, this is what really caught on to me back in high school when I was not too socially conscious. I was still just more confined to my high school and anything beyond that was, oh, that's for adults. I'm just a kid. Mm. Um, the way it was sung and the fact that it it didn't feel like intellectually rigorous. Like, you know, because like in high school, sometimes, you know, for English classes, we would read some poems and I sometimes would be kind of critical about them um, because it just felt like I was reading a, a mishmash of words that, like, you know, I didn't understand, like, no one really understood. And it was written in a way that was just, like, it, it felt, it, it was just trying to be difficult, just for being <laughs> difficult. Um, and, I mean, like, maybe now I might have a bit more, uh, like, a, a deeper understanding and connection to it you know mm. um, just like i do with certain like say classical music styles um, i'm thinking of like sort of the uh, expressionist movement the atonal music where people who listen to it they just they're like oh it's just people banging on a on a piano and it's like no it's a lot more complicated than that but it <laughs> winds up sounding like that for someone who isn't in the thing but at the time you know what i really appreciated was like you know, poems and songs and so on that were like, they had a deeper message, mm-hmm. but they were written in a way that was like not intentionally difficult to read. Mm. Like it was so like, a, you know, one of my favorite poets um, is Pablo Neruda. Uh-huh. You know, he has some poems that are kind of more uh, diff- and I don't think uh, po- poets and poems should always just be something simple that everyone can read uh, at first glance and know what it's talking about and like know the message and so on and so forth but like a lot of his poems also were written in a way where it was you know it could be spread around to people and people would get it and would really feel it mm. there's poems for people in a sense and there's poems for the poets mm. so like those kinds of poems that like might not be so popular because they might be difficult or they might be a bit strange and kind of maybe too abstract sometimes but for poets who like might know what's going on or might have a deeper understanding of how to read a poem like like sort of focusing on the line breaks focusing on what are words being emphasized then it's just it's like a very interesting almost intellectual exercise Mm. so how can i use this in a way that it can be written to a larger audience so people can kind of understand and enjoy what I understood joy. Right. Before, I didn't really have that. Nowadays, I tend to welcome most poems. And of course, like everyone, there's, I still have my tastes. There's some poems I might not necessarily appreciate or like, but I do appreciate at the very least. But, you know, it's all subjective, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think no matter what, we are always looking from our own lenses, whether we receive formal education in a 
literature or poetry specifically or not. The thing is there are always some writers that we resonate more with than others. In terms of your own poetry practice, when did you start writing poetry? So I started in high school and I started writing, you know, half poems. It was more of a song type of thing. You know, tried to write sort of in the style of like Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, especially early on. I was trying to write like Kurt Cobain because mm. uh, that was, I think, one of the first people I started actually playing the music of. Mm. I tried to both write some songs or I guess more like love songs and others that were like talking about the social condition before I even knew what the social condition meant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to be like the, the 60s folk singers, you know, be writing about all the injustices in the world. And most of the songs I wrote, I would finish writing it, I would read it and say, hey, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, some of them I just put through the music and sometimes I would write, you know, just playing chords and then like try to figure out words to match it. Mm. Um, and you know at the time I would be like this is amazing I love it this is gonna you know this is gonna make me popular and famous so I'm making a change in the world Mm. and then you know like a week later I would look at it and I'm like why did I write this why did I ever think (laughs) (laughs) but you know I I still kept trying and um, I didn't really think I was I wrote that much I I always thought I wrote like just a couple of bits of songs here and there but then it was, I think, about a couple of months ago, about a year ago, I was sort of doing some cleaning and I found a bunch of old notebooks. And there was a lot of notebooks that I had that were like halfway filled with poems and songs. And I was like, wow, I don't remember writing these things and just <laughs> read them. And I was like, now I remember why I didn't remember writing these things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tough. Jeez. <laughs> I, I'm, I am my toughest critic. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's something good. I've gotten better at. Yeah, I, I think it's good if you can you can be constructively critical with yourself, and that way, uh, when you put your poems out, sometimes I mean, hopefully, that means you'll get less rejections. Yeah. Since the poem you brought with you is actually one of the poems that got published, I, I think now would be a good time for you to read that for us and we can get into it. Yeah, I would love to. The poem is called Mice to Our Yoronas. They say like Yorona cries for her children, who she drowned to keep safe. They say a mother would go to great lengths to protect their babies. They say mothers would sooner die than let their children be harmed. They say, why she do it? They say she was crazy. They say she was brave. They say this ain't real. They say, they say, they say. I say I saw her. I say ICE agents held her. I say she screamed at them to get away. We say offering maize to our Yoronas who cry more each day. Thank you. When did you write this? This was a couple of months back. One of the things I wish I do with my poems is write out the date that I started it. But mm-hmm. um, I never feel comfortable enough writing out the date that I started things because 
it always implies a date that finishes and that then puts the pressure on me to finish it and uh, I never do. So it might have been around September. Okay. Not before then. Pretty recent then. Yeah. Where was it published again? It was published in the Houston Review of Books, which was a, a very interesting story, actually. Because mm. it was my first time trying to get my things published. Mm. I went to a workshop that was being held by, I think it was Fly Paper Pen. The person who was, you know, being my mentor for that sort of like two-week workshop, mm. um, you know, gave me some recommendations on how to go into publishing and, you know, it was sort of try to throw uh, your submissions to various, you know, journals. Don't just go with one or two. You can sort of maximize your chances if you're looking at it from like a getting published perspective. Mm. And so I think I chose like five or six. We worked out which ones would be pretty good. You know, I had two that were like, I would love to get published here one day, but I am pretty sure I won't get published. Three that were like, I'm hoping I'll get published here. And I think it was one or two including Houston Review books that are like, it's like a very small journal. And mm -hmm. uh, I like them, especially because, you know, they're from Houston. Mm -hmm. I'm mostly from Houston. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's like, there's that like small connection. And while it might not have like a map, like a large reach of base, it feels, you know, like you can really get a good connection with these people. And so I decided to throw mine all at the same time, which I think looking back now is a wonderful mistake I did because I was expecting it to take weeks before I got a bunch of rejections. Um, I was hoping to get a rejection, at least, so it can, like, make me feel good. of like, okay, cool, got my first rejection. Mm -hmm. There was this one pianist who, uh, he actually always would celebrate the first missed note that he would have in a mm -hmm. concert. Because uh, it meant that now he is able to finally play without the stress of messing up. Um, <laughs> So that's kind of what I was hoping for with poems. Mm -hmm. But instead, in three days, Houston Review Books was like, I will take all of your poems. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> oh no, and, how terrible for you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, that's why it's, like a, it's a wonderful story. because, it's, and, and you know, so I, I was like, I didn't even get my chance to get rejected. What, what, I was hoping to not have this. So I, it's not thrown at my face whenever I say I'm an aspiring poet. I told my mentor, like, so what do I do? Do you think I should wait till, like, just a day or two or what? And if I remember correctly, they said that if you don't accept it, I will make sure and go ahead and accept it for you. <laughs> so you better go ahead and accept it. This never happens. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, cool. All right, good to know. I'll do this then. <laughs> and they worked out a schedule of how it was going to be published and everything, and that's how it happened. Um, right. You know, I have massive respect for them they're more of you know reviewing books as the title says but you know they have had several poets and i think a lot of them are mainly from houston who have been published there along with i think some artists uh, for visual arts and whatnot so they're really cool that's wonderful and so have you been sending out other things to other uh, publications so the problem with that was that because all of those poems got accepted I, I quickly realized I no longer have any poems ready to throw out again. <laughs> Recently, I started writing some poems, like started preparing and, you know, of course, writing some poems to uh, go for uh, like round two. Mm -hmm. But uh, with the whole pandemic and everything going on, it's 
very difficult to have that like inspiration so like there's some moments where i i get very inspired and write some of these poems like maize for example mm-hmm. which it is talking about immigration and talking mm-hmm. about these problems that have structurally have been happening to immigrant families uh, and putting it in sort of like the the folk tale of the of la llorona mm-hmm. uh, but it, it really came out of me specifically from that aspect of i wanted to i was very i've been fascinated of the story of la llorona and wanted to sort of write it from a different perspective which i think most mexican and mexican american authors poets so on so forth always decide to do at some point because we just like to always to go back to that one story because everyone knows it and maybe that will make us popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, well, in this country, many of us have an immigrant background, but our cultural myths that we grow up with that we want to explore more fully as we grow up. And, and especially uh, if we dabble in the arts, then we want to sort of have our own take at, at those myths. Yeah, they're, they're standards in a sense. They're some of the essential core cultural items of what happens, especially for, you know, my perspective. Whenever I really started getting into poetry, you know, I always wrote poems that were tackling this. But the fact that, you know, I'm both Mexican and American, I was born here in Texas. So as a result, I've never really felt neither culture really, I don't want to say it really fits me, rather I'm accepted in neither culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, one of those things that at least I feel like the reason why I wrote this poem, apart from like the, I guess, the social message and talking about, I guess, the theory and frustrations of the circumstances going on, while putting it in like sort of the banality of like just rumor talk, mm-hmm. um, I, I wrote it as a way of continuing that sense of like well who am i you know uh, and what is my culture and like what is my identity where do i belong mm-hmm. which side of the border mm-hmm. uh one side if i was that completely would be that person who uh, might have been either drowned or might have seen the, their children be drowned mm-hmm. or uh the other side i mean you know i would just might be one of those people who would just say, why did she do it? Yeah, she was brave. Uh, this ain't real. She was crazy. You know, just sort of sitting around, just talking about these things, watching it in the comfort of uh, of one's home. Mm. Maybe while I was writing it, I was thinking about, the, about that as sort of uh, the reason why I should write it. But I feel like whether one likes it or not, we're always going to have those essential qualities in us that are always going to be like, having a place in our poetry no matter what I, most of my poems are always going to have some sort of reflection of like my struggles of identity between lat being a latin american and being an american mm-hmm. um, even just in terms of like what is being written and what i'm saying is very in a sense almost political to me it's, it has a lot of like reverberations you know by saying latin american i'm putting a lot of restrictions and also a lot of freedoms in a sense while also saying you know because i was born here i'm calling myself american i remember back in high school my teacher a colombian spanish teacher she said that don't call people who are born here americans because americans 
or if someone refuses to call you American if you weren't born here, you cannot accept that because Americans are everyone from the continent. It is not just people who are born here. Mm. Everyone is American. Mm. And I mean, it's, a, it's a constant message for people who are Latin, who are Latin American, who were born not in the United States. Almost like proliferation of American means people in the United States. It's, it's very powerful and very gripping because then it, anything you say or write, it's put in that sort of box. Yeah, I feel like like what you were your teacher was talking about is also the larger context of us again being an incredibly ethnocentric by calling ourselves Americans as if people from both South and North America, which includes many many countries, are not Americans because the continent is the Americas, whereas we are only the United States of America, which is a smaller entity within the much larger context of the two continents. Um, And also from your perspective, the Latinx community and how that sits and, you know, being in a border state as Texas, where the issue of immigration is uh, very much in your face and having parents who were born in Mexico and then having been born here uh, in the U.S. yourself, that sense of almost having to choose or making, forcing you to choose uh, in the political context that we're living in now. Um, yeah. and, and I would say many times it is, it's chosen for us that we don't even have the option to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe we have the illusion of choice, but uh, if we choose wrong, it'll be known to us. And, you know, it, it'll be almost as like, no, 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 you're this. Don't mm-hmm. think you're not that. Mm-hmm. And it's this destructive feeling. And, like, you know, most poets that especially, like, I started really getting into while I was really developing a poetic voice, like more contemporary poets, they all have roots with uh, Spanish-speaking parts of America. Mm. And I always had this suspicion, you know, even from high school, whenever I would, would listen to some poems that were just seemed incredibly difficult for no reason. You know, I was always suspicious in a sense of poetry as a, as a style, because it's like, oh, it's probably just this academic thing. But then mm. when I listened to Chicane and Latin American poets, especially contemporary poets, one of the things that is always constant for most Latin Americans, that you have to at least write a poem talking about your circumstances of being a Latin American in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a required thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first poem that I listened to, Melissa Lozada Oliva, mm-hmm. uh, who is from New York, but like has Puerto Rican background, mm-hmm. uh, wrote this poem called My Spanish. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first listened to that, I, I started crying in my classroom because mm-hmm. it, it just, even though like I might have a fluent enough Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that was a constant, especially like high school or something, it's you're, you either speak Spanish as someone who was born in Latin America, which was always seen as better, or mm-hmm. you speak Spanish as someone who was born here in Texas, which is seen as like, oh, you don't really speak Spanish, you don't <laughs> speak real Spanish. <laughs> which is con- which is you know like I mentioned earlier you don't get to choose your identity it's sometimes chosen for you for mm. a lot of Latin Americans who were born in Latin America they see people who were born in the United States as like 
not true Latin Americans. Mm -hmm. But then people who were born in the United States, you know, people who aren't with a Latin American background, who see, like, say, Mexican Americans or Latin U.S. born Americans as, like, not really U.S. born Americans. Mm -hmm. So it's this, like, constant negation of who you are. Thankfully, in my high school, a majority of the people there were Latin American, so I never really had to have that like racialized, you're not really born here, you're not really someone who was born in the U.S., who, you're not really a Texan. Thankfully, mm-hmm. I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. I was sheltered in comparison to some of the other people who share my identity, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Instead, I got the, you're not truly Latin American, you were born in Texas. yeah you get it both ways it's it's very much in between again it's it's this feeling that you're not accepted uh, any anywhere and you know i think every poet writes an identity poem and having a latin american culture having mexican american culture your identity poem will be a latin american mexican american poet so yeah and again, because you're in this in-between state where, I mean, finding oneself is difficult, period, right? Difficult in anybody's lives. But then having to couch that difficulty, already difficult subject, in the cultural and historical context of the mess that is the U.S. of A. is, uh, yeah, something else. So yeah. I wonder if there was any particular incident that sort of triggered this poem to come out. So the poems that kind of had this sort of similar vibe were all written when the George Floyd uprising really happened. So Mm -hmm. I suppose it did have some of that context of, uh, you know, things started to flare up again and started to really put in everyone's faces sort of the violence that is brought upon people of color and people who don't have the influence to uh, be able to say, well, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the, all the people who are powerless, and this isn't just, this is also including poor white people who have been oppressed while also having this dynamic where they're both serving as oppressed people while yet also being convinced, if not whether by themselves or by someone else, and this is not for the whole group or for everyone, of course, but like, convinced that they're also part of the, I guess, the ruling class in a sense there. They, that they're better than people of color, than, you know, the, the Mexican people in a sense. That's, as has been said several times the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that probably in part due to being inspired heavily from like the folk tradition and also from my desire to not just, I guess, write individually but write about and for a lot of people who might not be able to have their voices heard mm-hmm. one of the things that i resolved internally and i guess as well externally is that most of my poems if not all of them are always going to be steeped in the social circumstances that are going on one of my favorite poets as i mentioned is pablo Neruda. another one is who is also more known as a playwright is uh, Berto Brecht. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all of these poets, while they did write some poems and that were like personal and weren't, I guess, attached to a political and social 
an economic consciousness. Most of their poems touch on that. They were social poets. Mm-hmm. And I realized very quickly whenever I started writing, I can't write poems that are, I guess, individual in a sense. I mean, I can't. I have written some that are like that, but they always have to have some discussion about what is going on. You know? mm-hmm. As a result, you know, this poem kind of came out maybe not necessarily in direct commentary of something. Perhaps it might have been always in sort of cooking within me, especially discussing ice, because every time I, I cross the border, there's always a bad run-in with ice. Mm. Always those questions, you know, where are you going? Why are you going there? Where are you from? Why are you from there? So on and so forth. And it's like, yo, I just want to visit my grandparents in Mexico. <laughs> like, please. Stop pointing that gun at me. But they've never pointed a gun at me, thankfully. But uh, they do. I, I've had some run-ins where somebody, they were holding a higher-powered rifle and were asking me questions. And I was like, yo, my dog just died. Can you, like, not ask me why I'm coming out of an airport without any baggage and crying? Mm. It's terrible. Yeah. It's ironic, isn't it? Because they themselves would might be going across borders though maybe a state line only to visit their grandparents or relatives. It's just, yeah. it's just you know, when the border is a different direction, suddenly it, it takes on so much more meaning, especially yeah. in these days. And Yeah, and at the end, like, meaning is, and sort of like ideas and all of these things that are often the bedrock of why people are doing these things, it winds up, especially if you see it from the perspective of decades and whatnot, you realize that the ideas that are supposedly commanding these actions aren't really what's commanding it. Like they say like, Oh, to keep the border safe or it's to keep the bad people from coming in or, and so on and so forth. But you, you know, as you then, if, if you like sort of look at the conditions and you look at the things that have happened to other ethnicities that you know, historically that were being oppressed as well, you realize that it's not really about these ideas of like Americanness or like whiteness or whatever that were more extreme ethno-nationalist ideas. You realize that like it's more the material things that are happening. You know, like why is the border militarized? It's not because of ideas, but rather because it benefits certain groups of people materially. You know, uh, yeah. especially like say for example in California. You get a lot of undocumented labor like that. I remember I would talk with a lawyer who was an immigrant rights lawyer. And, you know, she mentioned the like, especially like sort of the ice camps and so on and so forth. You know, all of this is a really strong, like money-making industrial complex. The people who are the wardens and the companies who are hosting these camps, they're making a lot of money off of this. So it's just like, oh, you don't care about these things. You don't care about like, say like, you know, them not bringing drugs or whatever, because, you know, a lot of those drugs aren't even coming from those areas or you're trying to keep the peace or whatever when the data doesn't really match up with what you're saying. It's just because it's a way to make profit off things. And it's like, ouch, you're making profit off of people like me who look like me, who have the same skin color as me. As I was mentioning earlier, it's just this kind of disconnect between identity it's chosen for me you know because now i'm being chosen as a latin american because i'm just 
I'm sort of identified as one. I'm, my skin is brown, so I'm seen as that. Right. Thankfully, my or and, and that's a horrible thing to say. Even just what I just said right now is disgusting. That I said I said thankfully because I was going to say thankfully my skin isn't really as dark, so I'm not identified as harshly as people who had darker skin than me. And just simply that, that's disgusting. <laughs> you know. I think you know the the discrimination is so strong, it's so visceral that it makes you thankful for not being in the category. It makes us operate in the same mindset as the people who would discriminate against us over the shade of our skin or the way that we look, according to some kind of pre-described. Notion of what is American, where you know again yeah. it's not. It's done to for various reasons. I think different yeah. different segments of population would perpetuate these these racist and ethnocentric ideals and and practices for various different reasons. Some people are are pure in the their belief that you know darker shades are somehow just inferior. Uh, which yeah. does not make any sense because biologically, there yeah. people who have melanin are better adapted, <laughs> biologically speaking. So <laughs> actually, it's the opposite. So it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. But you know, I I think our species are we think a lot more of ourselves than we actually are. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, and like it, it, it essentially it creates an other. You know it. It's a very convenient other because at the end of the day, like, you know, Irish people were used to not be white. Yeah,、uh, Italian yeah. people used to not be white. Yeah, they were considered the Irish was considered the the N word of Europe. Yeah, yeah. It just goes to show how you know these supposed ideas that you know people have, like, oh, you know, like protecting sort of the the idea of like the United States from you know the immigrants or whatever. Uh, the others,、uh, it winds up just being this thing that you can always move the goalpost about, yeah,、uh, to yeah. whatever's most convenient. Yeah, I, I think we need to examine this idea of othering, which is always happening, and partly has to do again with our species' inability to process as much information as we think we can. We we have limited capacity to. Process information, and that's one of the reasons that we need to compartmentalize. And so it's easier to say this is us and that's them kind of thing. And, and again, it morphs, right? Obviously, we are capable of because it morphs. We are capable if we are taught in a way to be much more inclusive. Because as you said, Italians were not considered white. Irish were not considered at least not waspy white. Or privileged white, so there there are a lot of intersectionalities within the white community itself,、uh, and a lot of various nuances that still persist. Because I've actually experienced anti-Italian、uh, prejudices toward people I know, and it took me by surprise. I was shocked by when I encountered it. I was like, "Whoa, what decade am I in?" And when you encounter that, your sort of understanding of racism changes. 
I've gone to various communities, partly because of the poetry, partly because of the podcast. And I, I've seen always this in-group, out-group dynamic. And it's very interesting. And it's not necessarily on racial, uh, it doesn't break down on racial lines. It does, it's, some, it, it's, again, multi-dimensional. Yeah. I have a, a friend who, you know, used to live in Connecticut. And he went to a school that, like, was mainly like sort of Italian American, and one of the ways that the in-group out-group bias or discrimination would go into, or sort of the, that fighting, would just it would wind up devolving of like, say there was a disagreement or there was a fight that happened, the the two Italian Americans would start yelling at each other of like, oh, you know, you're like this because you your ancestors come from this town, and all the people in that town are terrible, and so on and so forth. <laughs> So they would just go on at, a, at each other because of like the different villages that they're from, and just they they would like insult their village, village's name, and so on. And so it's just like, oh, that's wonderful. You're just there's always going to be those like petty disputes between like little villages, little towns, and so on. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Not surprised at all. Like visiting other countries, you realize the north-south divide. Is not just within our own country. It's within pretty much every country. And north-south divide in Italy is very stark. There is a lot of mutual prejudices. Um, yeah. It's in every country. It's wild yeah. encountering it, especially growing up in the U.S. And you're like, oh, I thought it was just this country. And I was like, nope, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and like it, it'll, uh, it'll always be cemented as a true and proud Houstonian uh, <laughs> that you were born and raised hating Dallas, which is ironically in the north. Uh, <laughs> there you go. You know, so it's, it's like, oh, you're from Dallas and everything. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have a lot of Dallas friends, so I, I you know, I, I don't have uh, a distrust of Dallas than like other Houston people that, that I know, but you know, like it's, it's always fun when it when it flares up during like football season, because, you know, the Dallas Cowboys and the Houston Texans, and then they both wind up like losing almost all games. So it's <laughs> I don't know why we have such bitter rivalry, but you know the, the, I would always joke around with with people, which is not really a joke to be fair. It's kind of true that Houston just is that that one city that hates everyone else. You know, we we hate Austin, we hate <laughs> Dallas, we hate San Antonio, we hate everyone. Um, and the reason why we hate them is because truly we hate ourselves. Houstonians hate Houston. <laughs> we hate Houston with a passion. It's such a large city. Um, it's very uh, uncomfortable because it's like like it's always humid and like it floods easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but for we cannot let anyone else say anything bad about our city or else we will fight them. Yeah, it's... yeah, people do that. <laughs> people do that with their families, too. And they're like, yeah. no, 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 you don't get to criticize them. I get to. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny that you wrote about La Llorona, and I actually also wrote uh, about La Llorona because it's such a prevalent cultural icon and where I was living, and also just um, that movie, Frida, there was a song uh-huh. about La Llorona. It was just it just got stuck in my head. I wrote this poem years after I saw the movie, um, uh-huh. but 
the cultural aspect of it was just looming very large. Uh, and so uh, La Llorona also plays a role in the poem that I chose uh, to read with yours. Uh, and it's called To My Sisters. So I'm going to read that now and we'll talk about it. The sky dresses in the somber billows of La Llorona and wails for her lost children as Cain's eyes flare with green embers Hands hold firm his sharpened blade, glinting with hatred for an almighty he can't maim, and settles on slashing reflections instead, as brothers transmute into sisters, cold steel coats with the warmth of life, leaving the combative earth to drench with sacrifices unheeded. Vapors of muffled prayers rise to mix with air latent with the detriment of men, call to embody saintly forms, painted gold and white, but the glowing veneer shields, the brittle wood beneath, threaded by parasites making hollow the one solid whole. Wonderful. I, you know, was very excited to hear how you would read it, because the word choices and sort of the, the line breaks that you did, it had this sort of very open, especially the, the, the fact that you chose not to have punctuation, it, it gave this sort of like open-ended or like open book type of thing where you, you know, it's like how, like, how would you interpret it? I was very curious. And like, I know you mentioned that you, you know, were very much inspired by La, by La Llorona, but like, was there anything else that really inspired you for, for this poem? I always start with a line. So a line will come to me and then I write from there and see where it goes. I was actually on the light rail when I wrote this, and um, the sky tends to be beautiful. It conjures a lot of imagery, and it was like uh, sort of a stormy day, and and so the first line sort of came to me, and it looked like it was about to cry, and this was written, I believe, in the beginning of uh, this year. Uh, I was going through a lot and you know the country was going through a lot at the time even before uh, yeah. corona was like enter into our imagination <laughs> oh for sure so I I use Urona as sort of this larger mother figure and mm-hmm. as your poem suggested there are a lot of different chisme kind of about her you know different ways of thinking about her and thinking about her story of whether or not she is this sort of Medea type where she killed her children to spite the husband who cheated on her or if you know she lost her children because she was trying to protect them or something that was the other story so there there's like different ways of looking at her story and so I I kind of researched the um and so I, I made her, in my poem, she's a much larger figure, almost like a Gaia kind of figure, without the embodiment of Gaia being the Mother Earth, mm-hmm. but more like a godlike figure, a female god. Yeah. And Cain and Abel being the famous biblical siblings, who, one of whom killed the other. Yeah. Set in these 2020 times, the sense that we were 
headed towards almost another civil war kind of feeling that there were just such such political, ethical, moral differences that there was no way of coming together. That feeling. But then also, as the title suggests, this is a poem about femicide. Um, Again, I not only turn the Yorona into something, another kind of godlike figure, I also turn the Cain and Abel story into one where Cain kills not a brother but a sister, but still a sibling, um, in that we are hurting each other because, again, we see each other as so this other. There is this feeling of how of how men and women cannot possibly understand each other because we're so different, whereas we're not actually all that different. It just depends on how much certain amount of hormone we got in, in when we yeah. before we were born. It's just like really just levels of hormones. <laughs> so. Yeah, like you know, all of it is a social construct. You know, I wanted to touch a little bit more on the poem, like especially, you know, hearing that like it, it in many ways validates a lot of what I was thinking while I was writing out sort of my thoughts of the poem as I as I read it. Looking at it from a, a, a viewpoint of like sort of feminist side. One of the things that is striking to me is whenever I was reading this poem, um, I felt the same way as whenever I was viewing. There's two specific paintings. One, which is I think more obvious, it was Cain Killing Abel by Pietro Novelli. Mm. I think it was during the Baroque period. You can see a lot of darkness and a lot of light just constantly like fighting each other, like itself while it shows a very brutal scene. And the other one, you know, is Judith slaying uh, Holofernes by Artemisia Gentileschi, who a lot of people, like in the art world, like have called her like sort of a, a feminist before feminism in a sense, because like this painting, uh, if you've seen it, it's like, it's the one where it's a woman like slashing the, the throat of a, of a man who is uh, naked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a very gruesome, very like in, in your face about it. And like the reason why I'm bringing this up, not only like to feel this way, but you know, with the aspect of feminicide, it, you know, there is like a very brutal aspect. But I like the fact that you mentioned, like, or that you brought up by Yorona, because you know, this year, if not also the year before, a lot of the feminist or anti-feminicide uh, protests, the feminist protests, have sprung up in Latin America, including Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, like, there's sort of these mass events like fighting against what you uh like sort of wrote out what like the the experiences and like sort of the the gritty and like violent scenarios you know people are rising up and risking themselves and risking it all to fight for a change so i I, so i guess that's why i am really glad i brought up like or thought of artemisia because while like the poem itself is not showing i guess a positive ending it's showing something very dark and brutal I guess, in contrast to what's happening now, the social movements fighting against feminicides, I guess it, it couldn't have been a better time because it's showing like there is something that can be changed. There is a better world that can be changed, that can be brought. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be like, I guess, the poem shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things that poets tend to do is reflect on the problems of society maybe in the hopes 
that our words will bring about change or our words will highlight these problems enough that people would think about ways of making things be better. Yeah. A couple of lines that really stuck out to me. It's so much that I, I wrote it out. I kept bouncing back to it even though I would go on to the next line. You know, it's uh, sort of like, as Cain's eyes flare with green embers. I don't know why, but it, it really it stands out for me. Like, I guess just the fact that, like, green eyes aren't a very common thing you, like, one sees. Mm -hmm. Like, especially, I guess, uh, when you're thinking about, like, sort of Cain and Abel's social time, you, you didn't really have contact, so... It really shows, like, the, like, the, the, and especially as embers, you know, I don't know if green embers are a thing, but if so, it's, like, something that's very rare. So it just shows how this, like, this, it, it's really driving firm how powerful, how, like, almost dreadful it must be to see Cain in that moment, you know, seeing, like, green eyes flaring and everything. Uh, and especially with the context, it, it, it's it it feels a lot more darker than I was thinking, even originally. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and yeah, I wanted to get the sense of jealousy, because I think one of the things I was feeling was also that there were actions being taken by friends that were motivated by jealousy. And, okay. and again, I, I feel like we don't necessarily do things with the motivations that we think we're doing and there, there are other underlying motivations that maybe we do not admit to um, out of a sense of shame perhaps but we can commit atrocities based on those unadmitted motivations and you know to me in this particular poem Cain is jealous of of Abel, oh, well, it was the original story as well, is that Cain was jealous of Abel. I think Abel is more loved or seemed to be more loved by God or something. And I, I actually don't know the story very well because I'm not religious. So I had to look. Yeah, I had to look up these things. <laughs> uh, I had to look up La Llorona's story. I had to look up a Cain's story in the editing process uh, to just make sure that I got it right because I don't want to spread any more false information than there already are. So I, I wanted to get across this idea of jealousy-fueled atrocities. And again, femicide, I feel like, is very much driven a lot of the time by not necessarily romantic jealousy, but the jealousy of men for women when they feel like the women can live without them. And that yeah. is just untenable to certain men. They cannot deal with that for some reason. It's, you know, they don't move on. They don't say, okay, well, this relationship didn't work out. Let me move on. Try to find somebody who's actually right for me. Or let me look at my own flaws and see what I can do in order to find and also to allow uh, another person who I want, you know, uh, to, to love me back. Because, you know, maybe these are flaws that, that should be changed, that are not healthy for my well-being as a human being instead they're like oh i can't have you nobody can have you either i'm gonna kill you <laughs> you know they go down that path instead 
And yeah. again, I couched this in, you know, very, very old, very familiar stories, but changing them. And I think at the same time, I have wanted to write a more surrealist. Surrealism. Yeah. But I wanted to write a more surrealistic poem as well. And I think that's probably why the, uh, the La Llorona song from Frida uh, came to mind as well, because when the song was playing, it was showing a montage of her very surrealistic paintings at the time. Yeah. Now that you mention like surrealism, it's like, yeah, you know what? This is it. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you know, like... And I wanted to use that throughout uh, the image, very iconic images from Catholicism. Uh, like the yeah. the gold and white idols, you know, the, the veneers and, you know, how these idols and churches tended to be painted with. And so it's it's not through and through marble or through and through gold. Everything is just painted with. So underneath, you know, worms could be eating through it. So, and again, it just reflects on how the fatal character flaws of, the men who decide to commit femicide rather than work on their own issues. And I think gold and white also indirectly alludes to that guy in the White House who won't leave. Yeah, and like in inclusion also, like, it, you know, gold and white and even just like the saintly forms and like sort of the Catholic Church as a whole, like, you know, uh, it, it's seen as this like, powerful entity very powerful and then especially in the catholic church very male mm-hmm. you know and bringing up this idea that like the, it's that the brittle wood beneath is threaded by parasites making hollow to one stolid hole it's just sort of like this idea of decay as you you know brought up and everything i love it just because it, it shows the sort of sense of decay that power brings mm-hmm. and as you mentioned earlier, like it, it, it often isn't like done, like you know, like feminicides aren't happening because, like, say, a, a, a boyfriend or a lover or a husband isn't killing their uh, the woman because they love them, but rather, you know, that they don't want to see them with someone else. They don't want the, them to leave them, and just the sense of power and entitlement. Mm-hmm. It just really flows well with that aspect of the saintly forms, you know. A saint always seen as like these ever powerful beings that do no wrong, mm-hmm. uh, and they're painted gold and white. You know, gold always seen as a symbol of wealth, and white as a symbol of purity. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, glowing mirror—it's just—it's showing brittle wood. It's all appearances, and with this sort of attacks that Cain does, this murder and this very gruesome. Back scenes that you were showing earlier on, it just shows that rotting and decaying sense, even just in the biblical and like the religious sense of how you know power and like sort of religious iconography and you know all these things are used in a way to justify such horrible acts and especially horrible acts done towards women, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with the aspect of like like the husband murdering like their wife because uh, their wife wants to get a divorce. Or something along those lines, because they feel like, you know, it's like I own you now, mm. uh, in accordance to like religious law or whatever, you know, in accordance to like 
because we've married through the church, now we are fine. Yeah, and also just the religions of the book that has this image of Eve being transformed from Adam's uh-huh. rib. It almost means that she always belonged to him, you know, that sort of very lasting image that we as uh, women from other parts of the world in general, but also just just women in general, even if they, they were born on, under any religion of the book, even they've had generations uh, that believe in that. So what? You know, it's like, why should we be seen as less than, as only worthy of a part of, rather than being an equal, um, you know? Uh, and so it's very problematic for me to think of, uh, you know, also think of how religious teachings have perpetuated this idea of inequity um, uh-huh. yeah. between between the genders, and also going back to La Llorona's story, the one where you know her husband was unfaithful, uh-huh. <laughs> and again, this idea that somehow if the men did that, it's okay. That's that's them being men, whereas if uh-huh. the women was to do that, it is somehow unforgivable. A sin, uh-huh. you know. So, it, yeah. as far as I know, adultery in the Bible does not assign a gender. It's new, uh, gender exactly. neutral. So, it's, it's very interesting, right? The, because some parts of the Bible tends to be very egalitarian. Some parts are not at all. Yeah. And, <laughs> it, and, and it, it just goes to show how ideology works, where people can cho- pick and choose using these uh, sacred documents, whether it be sacred from like a religious standpoint or sacred from like a, you know, social standpoint um, and like use it as a way to further their ideology of like, oh, I have the right to kill my significant other because they're not doing what I want them to do. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, wow, that's, there's no justification for this. It, it, it's just pure like ideological nonsense in a sense. Yeah, a lot of rationalization, uh, definitely. And I think also yeah. um, part of the reason for that iconography, the the white and gold and the reference to 45 is also, I think, around the same time, that's when the rape accusation um, okay. from the... I forget if she's a Dear Abby or one of these uh, advice columnists who came out uh, to yeah. say that he raped her. Um, all of these things sort of go into the poem in in mm-hmm. one way or another in the subconscious and conscious. It's just very powerful, you know, as you mentioned earlier, how poets can have the ability to sort of, I guess, speak out against these injustices and like, how we have the opportunity and almost, in a sense, the duty to be able to write about all of these things in a way that, you know, sometimes it can be like using flowery language, you know, language that is beautiful, but sometimes when the necessity is brought to us, uh, you know, it, we have that duty to speak out and write poems like these that criticize all that needs to be criticized about what, and no matter how powerful they may be, 
no matter if it's a male interpretation of the Bible or the president of the United States. You know, nobody is free from criticism and nobody is free from, at the very least, being uh, dragged in a poem like that is uh, <laughs> that is calling them out as it should and uh, that is, you know, used as an effective tool to agitate and to raise the the spirits of people who are in the trenches, so to speak, fighting mm -hmm. uh, the good fight to end these kinds of injustices, to end feminicides, to end male dominance in society, uh, to end all of these structural oppressions. You know, uh, while we may not necessarily be the ones who will like bring the change, so to speak, you know, as much as I would love love the fact that I don't think a po uh, one good poem or one perfect poem could uh, make everyone just decide, you know what, we're going to change this all like in, in a snap of a finger or in the reading of a poem, um, unfortunately. Yeah. But what it does, at least, is that it reminds us what we're fighting for and why we're fighting. Yeah, and I, th I think saying an idea in different ways also helps to reach different segments of the population. And I think that's important to remember because, again, we are individuals at the end of the day and we respond to different stimuli, different provo provocations in different ways. I don't think there's necessarily a clear divide between those who instigate with their words and those who make change by other sort of actions because writing is an action in itself. It may not be the action of going to demonstrate, but it's it's still an action. And every everybody has to do their part to change society for the better again. And, and they have to do it in a way that is within their range of capabilities and also authentic to them. So it is very important for us to speak up and do what we can every age that we live in. To, to move society towards a better place, more equal place, a place where we can recognize each other for the individuals we are and also for individuals who are rooted in the society as we are to understand the dynamics of both. Um, yeah. Just to conclude, do you have any favorite virtual readings that you want to recommend to people? And also, where can the listeners follow you i still haven't really gone too deep into the you know reading world however i will never not emphasize how wonderful and amazing my fellow kook slam kook slam performances that i that are done i think almost every week mm -hmm. on um either on a weekend or something you know they have it they usually post on instagram and that's how i find out they mm -hmm. Like, they like to just, like, message me about it, saying, like, hey, can you come? So, uh, but if there's ever any of those events, you more than likely will find me there, cool. at the very least, reciting poem. Um, as for social media, I technically have a Twitter, but given 2020 vibes, I decided to take a break from it. Mm -hmm. So uh, if anyone decides to follow me on Twitter, don't expect any content from it. <laughs> <laughs> But it is there, and my Twitter handle is Compa Poeta, C-O-M-P-A-P-O-E-T-A. 
And on Instagram, which is where I can be found, I am also the same way, compa poeta. I have learned that keeping it sort of balanced in all of the social medias is the best way to uh, at least not try to memorize a bunch of different usernames. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> it is so much work. <laughs> but yes. Very nice. Well, thank you very much for your time for talking about your poem with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very glad you brought me on here to just rant about everything and nothing. Uh. <laughs> as always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. Thank you very much for listening. Have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.